Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is David Schreier, author, futurist, co-founder and CEO of Esme Learning Solutions and a professor of practice at Imperial College Business School. Uh, Hello, David. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, to reach back into your dim and distant past, you were a contributor to the book Trust Equals Data back in 2016. Now, that book set out a very clear vision. It's much clearer now, perhaps, than it was then, of decentralized economies, decentralized societies running on these privately owned uh, and privately controlled sets of, of data. How much progress do you think we've made towards that vision you laid out in the book over the last five years? We've made we've made quite a bit of progress, actually. And, and so there is good news and bad news on that front. Uh, I will also say that we, we updated the material with a book that we put out in 2019 called Trusted Data, revised and expanded edition from MIT Press. But, um, you know, what we're, we're trying to do is advance a, a body of thought and action around people reclaiming their personal data and, and having a greater awareness of what's happening with it. And so on the good news front, um, the European Commission and, and Parliament have uh, expressed a willingness to adopt a lot of the principles that we espoused in this book uh, in, in incorporating into their, their fabric of, of how they handle data and data privacy uh, in, in the European Union. So that, that's a big one for the win column. Uh, on the other hand, um, you have only to look at what Facebook has done with data and continues to do with data to see uh, the rise of QAnon uh, and see the fact that a lot of people still aren't really uh, aware of or, or taking action around what's being done with their personal data. So, so, uh, so mixed record, sure, but, but definitely some positive movement and, and people are really starting to, to get on board with some of the ideas that we talked about in the book. Can I ask you how confident you are the trade which which Facebook and, and Google offer, which is that you let us own and use your data as we see fit, but in return for that, you'll get a bunch of free services. Are you confident that consumers are going to not want to do that trade anymore once they understand the case for owning and controlling your own data? I have endless conversations with people where they say, well, you might think that, but in fact, most consumers are very happy with this trade. What's your view? I think that when people gain awareness and data literacy, they take action. So one example would be the mass migration from WhatsApp to Signal when WhatsApp changed its privacy policies. So, so I, I think there's, on one hand, there is a more sort of active world out there uh, if people just have an awareness of what's going on. On the other hand, I do think you, you do get this, this trade-off. And I, I don't actually have a problem with people knowingly giving over personal data in exchange for services. The, the, the issue that I have is that a lot of people aren't really aware of what they're giving up uh, in exchange for what they're getting. So you're worth, let's call it 400 quid a year to Facebook. Uh, you probably are not getting 400 quid a year of services off of them. So what's, if we, instead of casting our minds backwards, let's, let's cast our minds very far forward. And let's imagine that the consumer uh, has woken up to the value of, of the data which they're presently giving away in return for these services. And they start to pay for their email and start to pay for their uh, Facebook-like services. What, at that point, do you think the impact on 
the economy, capitalism in general is going to be. You're going to have all these consumers armed with their own data. And that data set is going to be very extensive. You know, it's going to run from their, their passport and their driving license right through to their shopping behavior, their holiday behavior, their health and everything else. So what's the, what's the, what's the economy going to look like in this kind of data-driven future? Well, it's the promise of things like open banking, for example. It's, it's this idea that uh, consumers will be more empowered and there'll be more competition if consumers regain control of their data and then have the ability to, to select goods and services based on uh, uh, knowing or informed consent and informed choices rather than choices that are thrust upon them by Mark Zuckerberg. Um, so, so there's a fairly bright future in, in a more robust and competitive market where more startups can get created, uh, better services can be offered to consumers, more competition is good for consumers. Uh, and and so, so that's the potential. Uh, but we do have this distressing lack of data literacy. And one thing that you know, I would like to see more, frankly, government action around is uh, a better educated citizenry. Well, one thing, I must ask you this question because of, of your original vision back in, in 2016. Do you think that economy is going to be reliant upon service providers looking after the data of consumers and the consumers kind of instructing those service providers how they, who they'd like to see it and how they'd like it to be used? Or is it going to be a decentralized system in which a consumer wishes to buy a, a good or a service and they say, okay, you can look at those sets of data and then the good or service provider goes off and finds them. Will it be a centralized system with service providers or a decentralized system? What's your thought about that? Yeah, I mean, we're, so first of all, I, I don't want to take too much credit for, for the work of others. Uh, Thomas Harjono and, and, and Sandy Pentland were uh, instrumental in, in the trust data architecture and the trusted data. Um, but, uh, 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 you know, my, my view is that people being who they are, we're probably gonna have data fiduciaries acting on our behalves rather than everyone sort of micromanaging their own personal data. I mean, sure, 10 to 20% of consumers will probably pay attention and, and manage things directly themselves, just as you have some percentage of consumers who actively trade their own stock portfolios and others who leave it over to professionals to handle. So just as you have financial fiduciaries handling a lot of your financial affairs, uh, like your pension or retirement plan, you'll probably have data fiduciaries handling your data, but they will be acting on your behalf and they will be remunerated based on your uh, uh, interests and have a, a fiduciary responsibility to you rather than the current setup where, where you, know, you have profiteers uh, like Zuckerberg who, who are uh, manipulating large numbers of people uh, in the name of profit and and even it, it's gotten worse in, in recent, uh, the last probably one to two years, now actively taking a hand in manipulating information around politics in order to protect Facebook's interests from politicians. Um, so that's a, a really distressing thing for a virtual monopoly to, to do. Uh, and, and so we, we do need to see change and, and change is in fact coming, but people being who people are, I, I think people are probably gonna look for data fiduciaries to carry the bulk of the heavy lifting. Now, one thing you can take complete credit for is, is the book uh, Basic Blockchain. Uh, now, in that book, and because we're a, a financial services uh, entity rather than a, a, a general economic entity, and it, it has full of advice about what blockchain will do to all sorts of sectors of the economy, but you paint a pretty bleak 
future, I suppose, in there for the, for the, for the traditional financial services industries, uh, you know, with 30, 40% of, of current employees, all those people involved in, say, reconciliation, uh, will no longer be doing that. They will lose their jobs. So to point towards the, the positive, to accentuate the positive, what are going to be the gains from the very clear vision you set out of disruption of that industry? Yeah, well, again, disruption is a good word for it. And if you um, ran a steam-powered uh, loom in the face of gasoline power, <laughs> or, or if you manufactured buggy whips, your business would be disruptive, absolutely. The Industrial Revolution changed industries. We are seeing a similar financial revolution now, and, and blockchain is at the center of it. And so uh, um, uh, it's not good if you make buggy whips but it's really good if you run gasoline stations. Uh, you know, in contemporary terms, uh, um, you know, making electric batteries for electric cars is a good business to be in. Being in lithium sales is a good business to be in. It's not great if you're if you're someone who's in the the traditional internal combustion engine supply chain. And and in fact, those businesses are now looking at the the, the passing of peak ownership and and what that means for them. So 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 in the financial services industry. Blockchain is changing everything, um, AI even more so. And I think the two together are going to continue to disrupt. And for people who are nimble, for people who can embrace these new technologies, it embrace both centralized uh, finance on blockchain as well as decentralized finance on blockchain, for people who can uh, acquire business knowledge around AI and algorithms. Not, you don't need to know how to program. The AIs will program themselves. But if you can understand the concepts you will be well positioned for the future and, and you could be the next Henry Ford. Well, which prompts an interesting uh, thought in my mind about if you are nimble, if you understand what, what's going on now, you've been involved in FinTech and blockchain and cybersecurity courses at, uh, for executives at, at Oxford University. And one of the things we have noticed is, and this is one of the reasons that the, the established, the incumbent institutions find it so difficult to change is the people leading these organizations are actually not very well informed about what's happening uh, in, in the world of, of, of digitization. They're classic examples, if you like, of, of this. You know, they, they overestimate change in, in the next two years and completely underestimated in the next 10. So they looked at blockchain like nothing happened between 2016, 2017, 2018. So they think, well, nothing's ever going to happen in it. So are the courses which you're running uh, at Oxford through ESME aimed at that type of executive to try and bring them up to speed with what's going on so they can offer better strategic leadership to often institutions which are a bit rudderless uh, in knowing what to do. They can see very clearly what the challenge is and they're actually at the margin starting to feel the pain of that but yet seem unable to do something about it. And I'll give you an example of this from our own experience. We tried to open a bank account the other day, we went to our traditional bank, they said well, uh, we can open a bank account. It will take four or five weeks, and you've got to fill in this form, and we might get back to you. seen in person. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, they, they probably wanted to see me in person. I go to a challenger bank down the road. It's all done uh, online in five minutes. That's what they're up against, and they know that. Absolutely. That's what they're up I had the same experience. Do when I, I, so I've just moved to the UK, but when I was living in the US, I had I had a, a UK subsidiary for my business since I needed to open up a bank account, and and. All of the traditional, you know, uh, uh, high street banks and, and, and incumbent banks, you know, it was 12 weeks to get an appointment to have someone see me in person. And, and even some of the challenger banks required uh, a UK phone number, which I didn't have as a US citizen. But, 
but some of these banks are global and borderless. And so transfer-wise, my account was open in five minutes and all I really needed was a current account. And it was so painless and so seamless and such a good user experience mm-hmm. that, that it really refuted what, what the traditional world of banks looks like. I mean, there's, there's a futurist that I love quoting, uh, Benjamin Palmer. And, and he said, the only time I ever go into the bank branch is when they've done something wrong or I have. And, and really that's, that's the future. And so do you really need all those people sitting around in these branches? The answer is no. And, and you can deliver a superior experience there. And, and the same holds true for the infrastructure on asset management and, and trading, uh, and then even investment banking. A lot of the work done by people today can be done by machines tomorrow uh, and potentially free people up to do other more creative things, but it will cause massive disruption. But don't forget my question. Is what you're doing with Esme aimed to try and bring some of these lagging yeah. institutions up to speed? A- absolutely. And, and, and thank you for, for that. I, the, the short answer is it's not just up to speed, but it's actually positioned to take control of the future. It's not just having an awareness of what's going on, but it's actually being possess- positioned to do something about it. Uh, and so working not only with University of Oxford, but also with MIT, and we have two other top 10 universities that contract we're building out a portfolio of capabilities for people to seize the future. And, and we want to be central and we are positioning ourselves to be central to helping reskill and retool the workforce so that people are positioned not only for what's happening now, but what's happening two years from now, three and even five years from now. And is the fact you're offering these educational experiences using modern technology is presumably part of the educational process, is it? Well, you know, we, we want to help you keep up with change. And, and to do that, we need to, to do a little creative work around how knowledge gets into your head. And so part of that is around the design of our program. So we use a lot of uh, research-driven techniques around cognitive and neuroscience and how we design our programs. So they're more efficient at getting knowledge into your head. But also part of it is, and a big part of it is, um, using artificial intelligence to solve the last unsolved problem in online learning, which is it's very lonely. And the best way to learn is to learn together with others, to collaborate around problem solving. And so we've built AI-driven technology to actually help you collaborate on a project, problem solve together, and and walk out of a a six-week online program with with knowledge you can apply immediately at work and have like a life-changing or career-transforming experience. And, And that's not hyperbole. Our students say things like, you know, this class completely changed my life. Now, talking of, of disruption, of, of seizing the future, of educating people to do that future seizing, uh, you've got a new book coming out, which is called Augmenting Your Career, How to Win at Work uh, in, in the Age of AI. That, that'll be out, I think, in the next few weeks, right? So. Uh, it's going to come out a little later this spring. You know, the publishing industry, like everyone else, has faced COVID disruption, but uh, but the book is available for pre-order now, yes. Okay. Can you give us a preview of what it says? A- absolutely. Well, you know, first and foremost, uh, just as you alluded to the fact that people were a little asleep at the wheel about blockchain, um, we need to wake up about what AI is and is not and what it can and cannot do, and also its potential impact on uh, almost every profession on the planet. So there is going to be tremendous change. Even the humble book author faces disruption from AI systems like GPT-3, which can write an entire book in minutes instead of months. Um, and, and so what does that mean for the future? And, and are there new futures we can build? And so the, 
the, a lot of the book spends time talking about how we can create new kinds of systems that bring people and AI together and do things that you couldn't do just AI alone or, or a person alone. Um, and that's a really exciting future for me to think about. Just a, a last question. Um, as you look across the whole field, what's happening in, in AI and machine learning in blockchain, and especially what's happening in data, which is where we came in with this conversation, one of the ideas in that in 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 the work back in 2016 was democratization. Uh, how confident are you that these technologies are going to end in democratization rather than some kind of state or private corporation tyranny, if you like? Yeah, I, I mean, I have hope and I have fear. Right. So, so the honest answer is um, we're creating the potential for democratization, but that does require work. I mean, people have to engage. And, and if you don't engage, if you just sit back and let things happen, then, then others will take your destiny away from you. But we do have control over our own futures. And this is something I believe firmly in. And, and that's true for data, it's true for AI. These things aren't just things that happen to us. And if we take control of our futures, we can absolutely democratize our data. We can absolutely create a brighter tomorrow where, where we can use AI to help us do things that we, we unlock human potential that never before was possible. Um, so, so, uh, so we absolutely have the potential for democratization, but, but there is the risk that if we, if we sit back and just let things happen, that, that we could wind up in, in some kind of data tyranny. David Schreier, thank you very much. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I hope to see all of you in our online courses on the future of fintech.